Welcome to the reading of the Quad City Times for Tuesday, February 13, 2024. All material heard on Iris is intended solely for the use of people with print disabilities. Your readers today are Dale Finnegan and Doug Kretzinger. And now with our first story, here is Doug. Thank you, Dale. We don't live in a silo. This is the Quad City Times. It's a, safe, a school safety part three in a series. Rather long, but it's important, of course. Communication vital for crisis planning, and it is written by Olivia Allen and Elisa Trofimek. And there's an editor's note here. It says, this is the third in a three-part series about how Quad City schools address safety. This story focuses on the role of law enforcement and communication in responding to a crisis. And it reads, in Quad City, Metro School Districts, mutual aid and coordination between local law enforcement and timely but accurate family notification protocols are crucial during emergencies, particularly since school resource officers, SROs, can't be everywhere at once. We have mutual aid agreements with all the departments around here, said Jack Schwartman, North Scott's sole SRO and an Eldridge police officer, noting the Princeton Police Department keeps tabs on Virgil Grissom Elementary School. It's not out of the ordinary for a deputy to stop in and check on the school, just because they know I'm one person to seven schools in a 20-mile radius, he said. If an emergency were to happen at a Davenport school, he explained, officers from the Eldridge Police Department would respond and vice versa. In today's environment, it is vital that first responders in schools nationwide collaborate to ensure that safety of students and staff remains a top priority, said Owen Farrell, Davenport Police Department's Public Safety Communications Manager. Davenport Police School resource officers and supervisors routinely coordinate with school personnel to prepare for and continually adapt emergency operations and response plans to achieve this goal, he said. Situations that show the necessity of this kind of approach include threats made by one student to another from different local districts. We're communicating back and forth, Schwartman said. I'd say the mutual agreements are pretty strong. It works well, not just for school stuff, but crime in general. While he'd like to see other, another officer employed in the district, Schwartman said it ultimately comes down to available funds and staffing. We're fortunate enough to, in Eldridge to have a lot of locally based and living law enforcement, uh, so we're pretty safe in that sense, he added. We maintain a pretty tight ship. A lot of the students have a good rapport with administration. Our juvenile court liaison, liaison is probably the best thing that's happened in this high school building. Davenport School's safety director, Andy Nirink and Communication Director Sarah Ott also spoke about the importance of a multi-agency response, particularly if a larger safety incident were to happen. We don't live in a silo, Ott said, so that coordination is essential for a very quick response, but also a very effective response. In June, Davenport Schools will host week-long training for Quad Cities law enforcement agencies from both sides of the river. If the unfortunate were to happen, we want that law enforcement response to be seamless between all of the agencies responding, including our own, Ott said. So those trainings are very vital. 
Every other year, Iowa State Patrol and Scott County Emergency Management also partner to host ALERT, that's in caps, A-L-E-R-R-T, Advanced Law Enforcement Rapid Response Training, hosted most recently at North Scott High School. How do schools notify families during an emergency? The impact, impact level of a school-related emergency typically determines how parents or families are notified. For example, Bettendorf schools follow this format. For a low-impact incident, such as temporary power outages, posing no or minimal risk to school safety, the district would notify parents via email. Incidents that result in some type of disruption to school activities are deemed moderate impact, warranting an email, text message, and school website post. Examples of these incidents include threats to a school or gas leaks, and high impact. Incidents such as a school intruder or shooting would be communicated via phone, text, email, press release, and the district's website. For high-impact incidents warranting evacuation, Bettendorf Superintendent Michelle Morse said each district school has a walk-to evacuation site. She urged parents and guardians to refrain from going to that location in these instances. We're not going to release your child that, at that site, she said. They're coming back to school with us when it's safe unless we designate that as the reunification spot and we would communicate that out. While Nerink understands why parents may get upset if they aren't notified the second an incident happens, he said internal communication takes priority. We're trying to make that situation safe first. So it may take a little bit of time, he said. We also need to let the bus lots know of uh, food service, warehouse, maintenance, any of those within, because if a building is on lockdown, we don't want our staff going there. Farrell echoed his this sentiment. Any additional people arriving at the location of a threat makes it more logistically challenging to be able to quickly respond and make the scene safe, he said. If an incident should occur, law enforcement asks parents and guardians to look for communications from law enforcement or the school before heading to an incident, he said. We need to ensure first responders have direct access to be able to appropriately respond. Having access points and roadways open allows for swift response from first responders. On this front, Morse also argued the importance of accurate communication, noting students' initial panic or social media use may cause misinformation to spread. Let us be your communicator, he said, so you can return to your child safely. Fearing it could create a fog with crisis response messaging or add stress to an emergency, Bettendorf Parent and School Improvement Advisory Committee member Michael Burns said he's a staunch advocate for banning students' use of cell phones during the school day. He has no doubt that any safety concerns brought to his children's school leaders would be taken seriously and addressed via two-way communication. Even if the outcome wasn't what I would like, I would at least get some feedback on why, Burns said. And it concerns wouldn't be just addressed locally. I'm sure they would push it up through the district and work together to figure out a potential Solution. Like the district's constantly evolving emergency operations plan, Davenport schools are also working to improve its threat assessment document. This helps determine the appropriate notification process and response to threats 
made among students which could range from cyberbullying to physical violence. While it ultimately depends on the threat level and other factors, disciplining the student making threats may be one response, while NERINC said another might be to implement a safety plan for the student being victimized. Tim Hammond, a parent of three Walcott K-8 through students, took to Davenport's January 22 school board meeting to express concern about the school's response when another student threatened his son via TikTok. He said his son told the principal about the threat at 9, 10 a.m., but Hammond wasn't informed of the situation until his wife, an employee at Walcott, called him at 11.45 that morning. I told her I had no idea what she was talking about, Hammond said. She was hearing secondhand from other people in the building about our son's life being uh, threatened. He was frustrated by the school's lack of immediate response, having initially called the principal at 12.30 p.m. that day and leaving a voicemail. He ended up meeting with the principal that afternoon, who Hammond said was apologetic for the poor timing and assured him that his son was safe. While Hammond was told that district SROs were notified about the threat, he thinks the local Walcott Police Department should have also been informed. While he serves as the district's only SRO, Schwartman is also a North Scott parent. For every situation most serious than a slap on the wrist, I would say that parents are always well informed, he said. Just as parents need to be informed about a crisis at their child's school, students should be advised to say something if they see something. That's one of those conversations parents need to be having with their students, Ott said. I don't want to armchair any tragic incident that has occurred around the country because sometimes you can't predict these things. In other cases, she said, possible warning signs were there. So it's just virtually important to tell people like a trusted family member, adult or teacher, Ott said. Students know what's going on in the buildings. For students who recognize a possible school safety threat but are hesitant to speak out, she and Nerink urged the use of P3 Campus, an anonymous threat reporting app used across Iowa. That information is what then allows our security team and law enforcement to appropriately assess the threat and then deal with the threat, Ott said. She also suggested parents reiterate certain safety protocols, such as ALICE drills, A-L-I-C-E drills, to their children as it could help students instill confidence in both themselves and school staff during crisis. We as parents can't leave that just to school staff, Ott said. We need to be engaged in those conversations too. Considering today's digital age, Nerink also suggested parents monitor their children's internet usage, particularly for elementary age students to avoid predators or access to harmful content. It's your job as a parent to protect your child and keep them safe, he said. Since most parents don't always have time to fully sift through an emergency operations plan, EOP, McKinley Elementary, Elementary Susan Rowell wishes for more two-way safety communication from district leaders. They could do a better job of informing parents about, hey, just in case this ever was to happen, here's what we have in place, she said, suggesting a, a biannual reminders, instead of just leaving it as our responsibility to read through the district handbook. Still, Rowell has confidence in how Davenport school officials respond to a crisis. Noel said McKinley staff and administration were awesome 
about answering families' questions or addressing their concerns, but was unsure how district higher-ups would handle things. I feel like I would go to Principal Aaron Vincent and ask Mike any question, and my child's teacher, if she didn't know the answer, she wouldn't. She would find it for me, she said. I don't think they're afraid to talk about it. If certain concerns move up the chain, Rowell suspects district officials may be less likely to disseminate, to disseminate information that's going to get any parents riled up. Saying that schools don't exist in a vacuum, Ott said, keeping schools safe is a community effort. I think we would be wise to understand that there's a lot we can do to ensure our community as a byproduct, our schools are safer, she said. To address some of these things, gun violence, whatever they might be, from a community-wide perspective, it is only going to make our schools safer. That is the end of that story. It was long. I'm sorry. I should have split that up with you. That's okay. You did a great job there, Doug. I'm going to move to the local pages of the, of the Quad City Times now. There are a couple more stories on the front page, um, one of them uh, about a similar topic, the Iowa legislature proposing a bill that would allow armed trained staff at schools. But I, uh, in the interest of time to get some local information out there, I'm going to move to page A3. The headline at the top of the page says, City Seeks Strip Club Bill. Lawmakers are asked to pass bill allowing suits against clubs. This is written by Sarah Watson. Large cities in Iowa, led by Davenport, are pushing for a bill that would allow them to file lawsuits against strip clubs if the city or county attorney deem them to be a danger to public safety. Legislators passed a similar bill covering bars in 2022, but city officials say a loophole exists for adult entertainment establishments that do not serve alcohol. The bill, HF 2334, would allow cities and counties to ask a court to limit the hours of a, quote, adult cabaret, end quote, if there's sufficient evidence that an owner, manager, employee, or patron on or within 500 feet of the premises, A, shoots a gun, B, assaults another person with a dangerous weapon resulting in injury or death, or C, engages in a riot at least three times. The riot participants do not need to be the same each time. The temporary injunction would limit the business hours to between noon and 10 p.m. and prohibit the consumption of alcohol on the property. After a trial, if the court declares a public safety nuisance exists, the court could order additional restrictions, including a two-year injunction, temporary or complete closure, change in business practice or operation, or posting a bond. Davenport has two adult entertainment establishments within city limits. Davenport Police Chief Jeff Bladel told a subcommittee of House lawmakers on Monday. Bladel said they'd seen crowds of upward of 150, which he said requires significant police resources to tamp down disturbances. Additionally, he said, we've had shots fired at these establishments as well as even leading up to a homicide, Bladel on Monday said during the hearing. So all the things outlined in that bill for nuisances we've had at these establishments and what this does is it gives us an opportunity to put this in court. We try to work with the owners, but some of the challenges that we do get is that these are franchise businesses out of the state. So we don't get a whole lot of responses as far as prevention, intervention, and how we can slow these issues. 
In October of 2021, police say 35-year-old Samuel Wires Jr. was shot and killed by Lance Johnson outside of Deja Vu Showgirls on Grand Avenue in Davenport at 2.58 a.m. In November, Scott County prosecutors entered into a plea agreement with Johnson with a charge of attempted murder. Then, in April of 2022, police said a 33-year-old man was seriously wounded in a shooting after 2 a.m. outside of the same club. Managers of the club at the time said police calls for service were directed at people holding parking lot parties outside who had nothing to do with their business and that they'd tried various methods to disperse the crowds. After the legislature passed into law the nuisance bar bill in 2022, Bladel told lawmakers Monday that the city went through the court system to put sanctions on two bars within Davenport limits. The Metro Coalition, which represents the largest cities in Iowa and the city of Davenport, are registered in favor of the bill. Lobbies for cities of Waukee and Des Moines and the Iowa League of Cities spoke in support of the bill during subcommittee hearings on Monday. And I'll continue with another couple short articles here. Police ID victim in parking lot death. This is written by Anthony Watt. The LeClaire Police Department has released the name of the pedestrian killed Saturday in a vehicle collision. The woman was Leslie M. Powell, age 44, of Bettendorf, the department said in a news release Monday. The collision happened just before 11 p.m. at 717 North Cody Road in LeClaire, according to Scott County Court Records. The vehicle involved was a white 20, 2003 Cadillac Escalade. Authorities have accused Molly A. Vance, age 36, of LeClaire, of being the driver who struck Powell, court records state. She faces one charge each of homicide by vehicle and operating while under the influence, first offense. The Riverview Roadhouse is at the Cody Road address, court records state. When police arrived, they found the SUV parked on the steps and patio in Riverview's parking lot. Authorities pronounced Powell dead on the scene, according to LeClaire police. She had been pinned between the vehicle and the patio railing. The police said they found Vance sitting near the vehicle. Vance told officers she had intended to move the Escalade from one parking lot to another. Vance told the officers that she had thought she was in reverse, but the Escalade had instead accelerated forward. As a result... Of the investigation, police think Vance backed the Escalade up in the parking lot and struck a telephone pole. Authorities believe she then put the SUV in drive and accelerated toward the roadhouse. When she did so, the Escalade struck Powell. Initially, Vance told police she'd had a single beer. According to court records, police saw Vance had bloodshot, watery eyes and smelled of alcohol. She also had trouble walking in a straight line, staggering from side to side when she walked. When an officer administered a breath test, the measurement for Vance was .182, court records state. After she was Mirandized, Vance told officers she began drinking around 7 p.m. and was unaware of when she stopped drinking. Vance was free on $25,000 bond as of Monday afternoon, according to the Scott County Jail website. Her next court hearing is set for February 20th, records show. And I'll just do one more quick one before I turn it back over to Doug. Friendship Manor helped by endowment. 
the Rock Island Community Foundation and Friendship Manor have agreed to a partnership by which Friendship Manor will establish a $50,000 endowment with the foundation. For more than 80 years, Friendship Manor has been serving seniors in Rock Island and nearby communities. The goal of the endowment is to help the continuing care retirement community remain viable and serve residents for generations to come and ensure the long-standing hallmark virtue of never asking a resident to leave simply because they have outlived their resources. As part of the agreement, $50,000 from the proceeds of the 8th annual No-Show Gala have been deposited into the new Friendship Manor slash Silver Cross Charitable Care Endowment Fund. And continuing on uh, this page 5 local section, Scott County District Court story, um, child porn charges have been filed. A tip to police leads to arrest of Devin Dion Day. Thomas Geyer wrote this. A tip from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children to Davenport Police has led to the arrest of a Davenport man on child porn charges. Devin Dion Day, 29, charged in Scott County District Court with one count of sexual exploitation of a minor. The charge is a Class B felony under the Iowa law that carries a prison sentence of 25 years. Day also is charged with two Class D felony counts of possession of a depiction of a minor in a sex act and two aggravated misdemeanor accounts of possession of a depiction of a minor in a sex act. The Class D felony charges carry a prison sentence of five years each, while the aggravated misdemeanor charges each carry a prison sentence of two years. According to the arrest affidavits filed by Davenport Police Detective Sergeant or Detective Sean Johnson on September 28, 2023, Davenport Police were sent to Day's residence to investigate a report of an unresponsive baby. At the time, Day was subject of a tip from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. As a result of both of the investigation, search warrant for Day's phone was granted. On the phone, police found that from May 17 of 2023 through September 21 of 23, there were multiple videos made by a surveillance camera in the home of a minor victim. Police also located several incident images of, of the minor victim. For the May 27, 2023 date, police found an image of child porn that had been transmitted from Wicker, an instant messaging app, that's W-I-C-K-R, that allows for end-to-end encrypted and content-expiring messages. During a first appearance on the charges Saturday in Scott County District Court, Magistrate Peter Geirut scheduled a preliminary hearing in the case for February 20. Day was being held Saturday in the Scott County Jail on a $50,000 cash-only bond set by Geirut. And here's a story, uh, Rawson seeking spot on board. Scott County Supervisors, written Rawson speaking on board. She was appointed to fill the spot in 2023. It's written by Sarah Watson. Rita Rawson plans to run to retain her seat on the Scott County Board of Supervisors this fall. Supervisors appointed Rawson to be board to the board in 2023 to fill the remainder of Tony Kenobi's search for after he was elected Scott County Treasurer in 2022 elections. Rawson is running as a Republican 
County office seekers must file for the June 7 primary between March 4 and March 22. The only other current supervisor up for election in 2024 is Claire Ken, or Chair Ken Beck. Before her appointment to the Scott County Board of Supervisors, Rawson served two terms on Davenport City Council and is widely credited with jumpstarting the Davenport Dream, D-R-E-A-M, project, which provides grants for residents and business owners in certain areas of the city to make improvements to their homes and businesses. Rawson has worked for nearly three decades as a financial advisor and has volunteered, including six years as a volunteer in police service as part of the Davenport Police Department Crime Prevention Unit. She also manages the East Bluff Community's Garden and is the treasurer for the East Bluff Neighborhood Association. My financial background has given me the tools to guide our country's budget through good times and bad while being a responsible steward of your tax dollars. Rawson said in a prepared news release, as an advisor to countless individuals over the course of my career, I have been trusted to manage the assets people count on for their livelihoods during the most turbulent economic times in recent history. It's been my pleasure to serve our community in so many ways. I hope to continue to be known as an honest, trustworthy, and transparent public servant who elevates the needs of my constituents above all else. Uh, continuing on that A5 local page, our Rock Island Milan Schools story, Resource Fair takes place on Friday. This is written by Olivia Allen. Rock Island Milan Schools will host a Winter Wonderland Resource Fair from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Friday, February 16th at Rock Island High School, which is located at 1425th Avenue in Rock Island. Hosted by the district's Family and Community Engagement Team, more than 38 district and community resources are scheduled to attend and answer questions from families and community members. Some of the scheduled attendees include representatives from Blackhawk College, Nest Cafe and EST Cafe, School Health Link, Spring Forward, Metro Link, Unity Point Health, and World Relief Quad Cities. Topics the groups may help answer include job opportunities for parents, college and career readiness, college preparation, financial wellness and home ownership, mental, emotional, and physical wellness, academic assessments like the PSAT and SAT. Additionally, the event will provide food, fun, and other giveaways. For questions, contact Sarah McCoy at 309-948-5457, or you can email her, sarah.mccoy at rimsd four one dot org. Let's see. Another notice of upcoming event. The Hunter Safety Course is set for April dates. The Rock Island Con Conservation Club will host an Illinois Hunter Safety Course from 7 to 9 p.m. Thursday, April 11th from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Oh, excuse me. So on Thursday the 11th from 7 to 9 p.m., and then from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. on Saturday, April 13th. The Conservation Club is located at 2421 Big Island Road in Milan. The course will be conducted by Master Instructor Brian Hockenberry. If you would like to register, you can call 
1315 to reserve a spot. And one more. Driving range offers all weather options. The Rock Pile has 10 heated bays for practice in the cold. This is written by Gretchen Teske. Temperatures have been mild in recent weeks, but it is still a little cold for outdoor sports. In LeClaire, there's a new option for golf lovers looking to get back into the swing of things. The Rock Pile at Pebble Creek, powered by Top Tracer Range, is a new indoor-outdoor driving range at 3705 195th Street. Owner Kevin Kwok has previous experience in the golf world as the head golf pro at the Davenport Country Club and Crow Valley Golf Club. In addition to his latest venture, he is now a member of the PGA of America and the women's golf coach at St. Ambrose University. Kwok said the name for the facility was a callback and owed to great golf greats who often use the term rock pile for driving ranges. The old-time golf pros like Sam Snead, Ben Hogan, and Gene Sarazen would always say when they would go to the practice range that they were going to the rock pile, he said, adding that they referred to the golf balls as rocks. Once they piled up, it was referred to as the rock pile. The name just made sense, given its location at Pebble Creek Golf Course and Pebble Creek Community, Kwok said. For those who want to brave the elements outside, the Rock Pile offers a driving range with fully synthetic tour turf with five separate teeing areas that hold about 30 people. The range is open sun up to sundown, where golfers can purchase a bucket of golf balls from a self-service machine to hit whenever they want. For those who would rather be inside, the Rock Pile at Pebble Creek, powered by Top Tracer Range, is the best option, Quack said. The two-story building features five bays on the bottom and an additional five on top. The top bays will be available in the spring. Each bay can hold four golfers, with room for a few spectators as well. Golfers will have 21 virtual courses and games to choose from using the Top Tracer Range technology. And the best part, he says, is it's open year-round. Each bay is heated, meaning as long as it's above 30 degrees outside and not actively snowing, the rock pile is open for business. Since he opened in the fall, Kwok said the reservations have been pouring in. He said, we've been extremely busy. We're the only place in town where you can hit the ball outside and watch it fly. Reservations can be made online and are required. The bays are rented by the hour with additional 30-minute increments available. The rates differ depending on the day of the week and the time of day, Kwok said, but the range suits everyone, from beginners to professionals. It is just about that time for a little note that you are listening to the Quad City Times on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And I'll turn it over now to Doug for obituaries from the Quad City Times. And Ray G. Hambright is the first one today. Ray is spelled R-H-E-A, 93, of Davenport. Passed away Saturday the 10th of February. Visitation is going to be held on Thursday, February 15th, St. John's United Methodist Church in Davenport from 9 a.m. to 10.30 a.m. Be followed by a memorial service. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made to St. John's United Methodist Church, uh, the center or tunnels to towers.
True gentleman has passed away. Ray knew no strangers. Always shared a kind word and smile. Was loved by all who knew him. He lived his life with a great sense of humor. His hard-working ethics and love of life were an inspiration to those around him. Ray was a member of St. John's United Methodist Church for 71 years. His love of God was strong, and he lived his life through faith. God and family were a blueprint for his life. Ray was one of the original volunteers and organizers for the Quad City Honor Flight. He was an avid Hawkeye fan who loved watching sports and regularly attended the Grid Club. He was a member of the Davenport School Board and was often seen at West High sporting events. To honor the great Hawkeye fan that Ray was, we welcome all who attend his service to join us in wearing Hawkeye gear or black and gold attire. Undying condolences may be sent to the family at il-iowacremation.com. And here's Patricia M. Trish Salins, S-A-E-L-E-N-S, 71, passed away peacefully February 9. She will be dearly missed by all. Memorial services will be 11 a.m. Friday the 16th at the Van Ho Funeral Home in East Moline. The memorial service will be live-streamed and may be viewed at uh, uh, Vimeo, V-I-M-E-O dot com forward slash 911921194. Visitation will be one hour prior at the funeral home. Entombment will be in St. Mary's Mausoleum, East Moline. At Trisha's request, in lieu of flowers and gifts, memorials may be made to Alleman High School for, or the Alzheimer's Association Iowa chapter. Trish was born July 5, 1952, Rock Island, to William J. and Beverly A. LaCrosse Salins. Trish grew up in East Moline, attended St. Anne's Catholic Grade School and Alleman High School. She received an associate's degree from Blackhawk College, a bachelor's degree from Eastern Illinois University, a master's degree from the University of Tennessee, and a doctorate in education from Arizona State University. Her career included various positions at multiple universities around the country, including East Texas State University, Texas Women's University, Arizona State University, the University of Illinois, and Southern Illinois University in Edwardsville. She was very proud of her 40-year career in higher education. She supported thousands of students through their college experience. Trish made many lasting friendships throughout her life with both students and colleges. Trisha is survived by her brothers, Mike Leslie Salins of Clinton, Washington, Tom Margaret Salins of Bettendorf, Iowa, Bill and Joni Salins of Bettendorf, and sister Mary Ann, spouse Ron Morgan of Arlington, Texas. Several nieces and nephews, one great niece and nephew, Trish was preceded in death by her parents and nephew, Christopher Salins. Family would, family would like to thank the staff of the Fountains in Bettendorf, and all caregivers that touched her life in the, these few years. And our last one here is for Rana Moody. Um, she was 62, Davenport, Iowa, passed away February 9. Cremation sites, cremation rites will be accorded. Per her wishes, no services will be held at this time. Online condolences may be left at rungimortuary.com. Rana was born on July 26th. 1962 in Los Angeles, California, to Sue Sexton. On July 5, 1999, she was united in marriage to Jerry Moody in Las Vegas, Nevada. They enjoyed 32 years in total together. 
Rana loved to read, enjoyed socializing with others. She will be deeply missed and never forgotten. Rana survived by her loving husband, Gerald Jerry Moody. She's preceded in death by her mother, stepfather, Gary Sexton, and her brother, Ronald. And just about four here pendings. Uh, Dean Atkinson, 64, of Lone Tree, Iowa, passed away Saturday or Sunday, February 11th. Arrangements are pending at uh, Bentley Funeral Home in Wilton, Iowa. And Victor Brian Clark, 88, of Andalusia, passed away Friday, February 9th. Harmony Davenport. Arrangements are pending at uh, Wheelie Presley Funeral Home and Crematory Milan. Richard M. Mick Dutchterman, 53, of Moline, passed away Monday, February 24, February 12. Arrangements pending at Rafferty Funeral Home in Moline. And finally, Monyeen, M-O-N-Y-E-E-N, Hora, 89, of Wilton, passed away Sunday, February 11. Lutheran Homes. In Muscatine, arrangements are pending at Bentley Funeral Home in Wilton. I'll now turn to the opinion page of the Quad City Times. There is one political cartoon drawn here by somebody whose name I cannot read. Oh, Marshall Ramsey. There we go. It's written at the top. Um, And it is a drawing of Taylor Swift, apparently, standing behind a lectern with a microphone up at her face. She's wearing uh, what looks to be a jacket, a suit jacket, and the podium says... President Swift. The speech bubble coming from her says, let's just say 2024 got weird fast. Very amusing. I will go ahead and read the Another View piece written in the New York Daily News by their editors. And the title of it is Supreme Skepticism Makes Sense. Trump's Colorado ballot ban doesn't stand up to scrutiny given the wording of the Constitution. And here is that opinion. The U.S. Supreme Court expressed proper doubt toward Colorado's attempt to exclude Donald Trump from its presidential ballot under the 14th Amendment. Trump is indeed an anti-democratic demagogue who sought to overturn the 2020 election before and on January 6th. But the judgment of whether he engaged in a second civil war is not for 50 state courts to decide. It could be unanimous to overrule Colorado. Interpreting Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is no simple task. It states, in quotes, No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each House, remove such disability. End quote. Question one is how insurrection or rebellion are defined. Question two is who does the defining and the enforcement. Question three is whether this language, which doesn't even include reference to the presidency itself, applies to that office or only to those beneath it. Question four is, can a state do this or must Congress? 
Lawyers on both sides disagreed with how exclusion from the ballot would proceed even if the candidate in question were an avowed insurrectionist running for office clearly listed in the amendment. Colorado's lawyer called it a, quote, very easy case, end quote. The self-declared enemy of America could be scratched from the ballot by state courts. Trump's lawyer disagreed and wasn't crazy for doing so. He said, even if the candidate is an admitted insurrectionist, this was Jonathan Mitchell speaking, the Constitution still allows the candidate to run for office and even win election to office and then see whether Congress lifts that disability after the election, end quote. It's true that the language applies only to holding office, not to running. And it's also true that it explicitly gives Congress the power to, quote, remove such disability, end quote. That Trump is a former president complicates matters further. Unlike every other president before him, Trump had never before sworn the oath for any other office. And what Trump did, while definitely wrong and quite possibly criminal, may not legally be an insurrection. Special counsel Jack Smith's case against Trump for meddling in the 2020 election is powerful. The prospect of a president-elect Trump, or a second-term President Trump, being found guilty of undermining the American democratic system is enough to make one's head spin. But state-by-state removal from the ballot by state courts for having engaged in insurrection? That dog will not hunt, nor should it. Again, that was the opinion of the New York Daily News editors. And for just one brief musical moment, her opinion, she writes for the Washington Post. Never is the word I would use to describe how often I've watched a film of any sort and smiled like an idiot all the way to the end. Sure, I've laughed, cried, mused, or become deeply depressed while allowing directors to have their way with me for an hour or two. But smiling alone in a cozy room transfixed by a TV is not a default mode I would cop to. The cause of this Mona Lisa pose was my watching the Greatest Night in Pop, a new documentary from director Bio Jungian. I can't remember how to pronounce that. Gwyn. About the epic making of the 1985 charity single, We Are the World. The song was recorded on January 28, 1985 by more than 40 top musicians to raise money for famine relief in Ethiopia. On March 7, that same year, the song was released by Columbia Records, topping charts in several countries, and becoming the fastest-selling American single in history up to that time. Imagine everyone, everywhere, listening to the same song at the same time. This was something of a miracle, but it paled in comparison with the process of creating the song and gathering a wild from across the United States, inventing solos and harmonies against the clock and ending in an all-nighter with a record recording for the ages. Who wouldn't smile at such a gathering of musical gods for a singular selfless purpose? Well, for one, my musically astute son. When I urged him to watch the documentary, he demurred and said, Watch Slow Horses. I feel like I'm casting good taste into the void. 
I suppose I knew the day would come when I would be viewed by my own offspring as culturally inferior. Well, it was my era, I responded with more than a tinge of pride. You were one at the time. Nothing since has touched the creation of We Are the World. The documentary walks us through the process from Harry Belafonte's ambitious idea to the songwriting by Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson, so young. To, li to live footage from the Los Angeles studio where the recording was done immediately following the 1985 American Music Awards. Co-producers Quincy Jones and Ken Cragen donated their time away from other projects, as did all the busy people involved. Bruce Springsteen flew out from New Jersey, arriving too late to collect his award for Dancing in the Dark, which had been voted favorite pop rock single. The recording event itself was a heroic effort by Richie, who also hosted the awards ceremony, performing twice himself and winning six awards before dashing to the studio to hold everything and everyone together through what became a very long night. After a few hours, the musicians were tired, hungry. Al Jarreau was overserved, and as someone noted, the crowded room was getting ripe. Even so, everyone remained pleasant enough and patient, considering that some parts of the song had to be reimagined in real time. At one point, Huey Lewis, Cindy Lauper, and Kim Carnes were asked to harmonize a tricky section, a feat that required many tries. Several of the musicians had one-line solos, while others sang in the chorus, including Dan Aykroyd, Bob Geldof, all the Jackson siblings, Waylon Jennings, Bette Midler, Smokey Robinson, and John Oates. Soloists include Richie and Jackson, Stevie Wonder, Paul Simon, Kenny Rogers, James Ingram, Billy Joel, Diana Ross, Dion Warwick, Willie Nelson, Jerome, Springsteen, Kenny Loggins, Steve Perry, Derry Hall, Bob Dylan, and Ray Charles. What is so striking about the documentary, besides how young everyone was, is how human they were. Check your eagles at the door, read the sign on the front door of A&M Studios, and it seems they did. Notwithstanding a few notable moments, several participants said that while that what a thrill it was to meet other musicians they admired. Stevie Wonder was silly and funny. Michael Jackson was shy and deferential. Lewis talked about how nervous he was for his solo line, which was originally intended for no-show Prince. The giddy, lopper mon, uh, the giddy Lopper wondered how she got to be in the room. The song won many awards and raised more than $80 million, about $214 million today, for humanitarian aid in Africa and the United States. We rarely get to witness the better angels of anyone's nature. Watching these thoroughly likable super talents surrender themselves to the cause of saving lives set to life-affirming music invites a two-hour smile. I think I'll watch it again. We won't have much time for sports, but I'm going to go ahead and read the third opinion today because it's about Valentine's Day, which is coming up tomorrow. Four things to know about coupling this Valentine's Day. A coupling is in quotes. This is written by Jill Epstein. 36 years ago, when I married, I did my makeup and hair. Our chutzpah, which is the Jewish wedding canopy, chuppah, I guess it's pronounced, yeah, C-H-U-P-P-A, chuppah, um, was simple. The food was solid. 
The music was ample but allowed us to retain our hearing. Recently, my son got married. My daughters and I had professionals do our faces and hair. The finished product had my husband wondering where I went, but I assured him the cameras would love me more. The food was Epicurean quality, and the excellent band was a full seven pieces, which meant loud. I became my mother, asking if we could take a few instruments away. My son's wedding led me to do a deep dive into the state of coupling in 2024. Coupling, in quotes, because it's no longer as simple as marriage. Here's what I learned. Number one, we're back. The marriage rate in the United States has returned to pre-pandemic levels. The Census Bureau reports that for every 1,000 unmarried adults, 34 tied the knot in 2022, an increase from 30 in 2020. Also, the divorce rates are at record lows. For every 1,000 marriages, 13.8 ended in divorce compared to 14.9 in 2019. Number two, the biggest factor for getting married is not love, cited only 36% of the time. Today, newlyweds identify companionship and financial security with 39 and 42% as top factors. Also, Americans are not marrying, quote, young anymore. Pew Research reports a nearly two-thirds drop by 22% in married people by the age of 25. We have clearly left the world of Ozzie and Harriet. Once upon a time, marriage was considered the start of adult life. Getting married, set up a house, and have kids. We're definitely having fewer kids. Today, many view their first adult steps as, quote, building a career and achieving financial stability. This might help also explain why the percentage of those who have never been married doubled from 15% in 1960 to 31% in 2020. Number three, a new alternative to both marriage and cohabitation is rising, and it's called, in quotes, living apart together, also L-A-T. It's estimated about 10% of adults in Western Europe, the United States, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia live apart from their romantic partners. Guestimates are that the United Kingdom is significantly higher. LAT partners explain that they are romantically committed while honoring their individuality and autonomy. The photographer at my son's wedding lives in New York and is marrying a vintner based in California. They anticipate living apart for quite some time, but she said, we'll figure it out. She is not committed to LAT, but careers can alter choices. Marriages where children from a previous marriage still live with a parent can influence the LAT decision by offering less conflict. The LAT lifestyle, remember living apart together, is also attracted attractive to same-sex couples, especially some gay men who want to maintain privacy from their unaccepting families. Number four, gray divorce is prominent. More than one-third of people who divorce in the United States are older than 50. The reasons are varied, but the gray demographic has a higher percentage of remarried couples, and remarried couples have higher divorce rates. Also affecting the higher incidence is the reduced social stigma of being divorced and the anticipation of living longer. Given all these trends, what can we say to newlyweds who hope to build a long-lasting life together? While Ozzie and Harriet may long, 
may no longer work, the basic principles of listening, compromise, and respect still do. The more things change, the more they stay the same. This explains why the words cited under my son's chupa resonate so deeply. The rabbi counseled, Love is not the overwhelming, blinding emotion we find in the world of fiction. It is the small, everyday acts of being together that make love flourish. My rephrasing the sentiment, sentiment goes like this. Acts that seem as small as pebbles can feel like boulders. Be attentive. Again, that was an opinion written by Jill Epstein, who is an editor of the At My Pace series of books. Time for a little bit of sports here. Freeman earns eighth weekly Big Ten honor. Moline product had 17, 14, 4, and 4 in Sunday's win. Written by Dave Selvig. Only one player in Big Ten basketball history has been named Freshman of the Week more than Owen Freeman. The Moline High School grad was picked as the league's top fresh for the eighth time on Monday, following a stellar 17-point, 14 rebound, four block, and four assist performance in the Hawkeyes' comeback victory over Minnesota on Sunday. Only Ohio State's Jared Sullinger earned the award more times in a single season than Freeman. Sullinger, a 2012 first-round NBA draft pick by the Boston Celtics, was named Freshman of the Week in the Big Ten 12 times during the 2010-11 season. For the week, the 6-10 Freeman, or the 6-10 Freeman, averaged 13 points, 9.5 rebounds, 2.5 blocks, 2 assists, and 1.5 steals as the Hawkeyes, 14-10 overall, 6-7 in the Big Ten, lost to Penn State before rallying out of a 20-point second-half hole to beat the Gophers on Sunday. For the season, Freeman is averaging 10.9 points on 64.3% shooting. He's also accounting for 6.3 rebounds and 1.6 blocks per game. Among Big Ten freshmen, he has the most rebounds, 151, blocks 41, and steals 26, and the second most points, 261. Freeman's four double-doubles in Big Ten play are the most for a freshman since Luke Garza, we all know him, had four in 2017 and 18 for Iowa. Freeman and the Hawkeyes are back in action on Wednesday traveling to College Park to face Maryland, 13-11, 5-8 at 7.30 p.m. The game will be broadcast on the Big Ten Network. And then I think maybe before I send it back over there, it's important that we all know that the Super Bowl was the most watched TV program ever was also the longest championship game in NFL history. The longest Super Bowl game will also go down as the most watched program in television history, written by Joe Reedy. According to Nielsen and Adobe Analytics, Kansas City's 25-22 overtime victory over San Francisco on Sunday night averaged 123.4 million viewers across television and streaming platforms. That shattered last year's mark of 115.1 million for Kansas City's last play victory over Philadelphia and is a 7% increase. The game was televised by CBS, Nickelodeon, and Univision and streamed on Paramount Plus, as well as the NFL's digital platforms. Nielsen also said a record 20 
Nielsen also set a record 202.4 million, watched at least part of the game across all networks, a 10% jump over last year's figure of 183.6 million. And the CBS broadcast averaged 120 million. The network's previous mark for most previous, most watched Super Bowl was 112 million for the 260. That's a lot of numbers. A lot of people watched this game. And it ends up by saying NFL playoff averaged 38.5 million viewers the first three weekends, a 9% increase over last year. That followed a regular season that averaged 17.9 million, tied with the second highest since averages, worst since, worst, oh, and I don't mean worst, first tracked in 1995. Well, that brings us to the end. <laughs> that brings us to the end of the Quad City Times for today. Tuesday, February 13th, 2024. I'm Dale Finnegan, and my partner at the microphone has been Doug Kretzinger. You can listen to IRIS programs on any computer or smart device at any time by going to iowaradioreading.org. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.